Welcome to the Feeling Bookish podcast. Rob Fay in Portland, Oregon, and I'm with Roman Sivkin in Queens, New York City. And from our East Portland studio, uh, Heston Hoffman, sound engineer, he's going to be doing double duty today and and join us in our conversation. And we're doing a bit of a different take here on the podcast. Instead of looking at a particular book um, this week, we're thinking about a broader subject. And, you know, this is something that you kind of threw out at us, Roman. And um, you've been going really, really deep on Spinoza since your uh, your trip to Scandinavia. And so we're talking about why is it that, you know, fictional characters create such um, s- strong emotions in us as readers. And, um, you know, as somebody who writes a bit, you know, I think of fictional characters as um, I think of it from the standpoint of craft that they've been. Uh, put together with adjectives and nouns and metaphors and similes. And it is really just mind-blowing that um, they take on such life. And, um, you know, uh, Huckleberry Finn uh, will always be inside of me. And he came on me like a storm when I was whatever I was, 12 or 13. Mm -hmm. Um, And I'll never forget him. You know, uh, I'll take him with me forever. So, so you know, what got you thinking about this? I mean, what what's your take on this, Roman? Um, well, yeah, I've just been, you know, like you said, I've been really reading into Spinoza lately, and, and maybe a bit of a background on Spinoza for folks who aren't. Um, yeah, Spinoza is, uh, you know, he's a, a philosopher from the 1600s. He was um, active between like around yeah, 1640 or so, and he died in 1677. At a very young age of about what 40, 44, something like that, very much like Thoreau, he died of a of a silicosis, which is a, a lung disease related to his profession, which was grinding lenses. He actually ground lenses for early telescopes, and uh, he was friends with, um, and I don't know how to pronounce the guy's name, Huygens, a uh, very famous astronomer. Um, uh, very interesting character, Spinoza. He um, his, his name was Bento Spinoza, uh, his Portuguese name. He came from Portuguese uh, uh, Jewish family who moved to the Netherlands, uh, to the Dutch Republic, and uh, you know, to avoid the, the wonderful uh, Inquisition that was happening in Spain and Portugal. And um, he had to change, you know, he changed his name to um, Baruch Spinoza. Baruch in, in Hebrew means blessed. Uh, because you know he he was kind of getting back to his Jewish roots, or at least his family was. And as he was growing up, you know, with the local synagogue and involved in the Jewish community, he started sort of um, questioning the basic assumptions of, of of religion and and society and the culture that was around him. He was living in a very interesting age, the the Dutch Golden Age, which you know the Dutch Republic at that point was probably the freest country. Uh, or area in Europe, uh, everybody around them was, you know, major experiences, you know, major religious persecution. But the Dutch Republic was relatively, and I'm, you know, definitely emphasizing relatively free at the time. And so he had this access to all these ideas and, you know, controversial things. And so he developed out of that his philosophy, um, which got him kicked out of the Jewish community. He was excommunicated, as I was just telling you guys. He, uh, the excommunication still holds after almost 400 years. <laughs> uh, they, they thought about lifting uh, the excommunication, the Jewish community, and then one rabbi said yay, one rabbi said no, and so it still holds. He is still officially excommunicated. Um, so anyway, so once he got uh, kicked out of the Jewish community, he basically lived on his own, uh, moved from, you know, in various, you know, lived in various Dutch cities, and like I said, died at a relatively young age. But he was regarded by many people around around him as a very um, kind of a sagacious character. He lived very simply. He would receive a lot, you know, receive a lot of visitors at his little modest apartments, and uh, he made friends with some of the leading lights of the of the Enlightenment. In fact, he Spinoza specifically was responsible for. Uh, what uh, an, a very interesting uh, scholar, uh, Jonathan Israel, calls the radical enlightenment, meaning the real enlightenment, the real sort of radical shift from what was happening before the enlightenment. 
And I was just reading earlier today something in the Guardian newspaper, I believe, about how we should be really, at least as we as a liberal, you know, the liberal West, so to speak, um, have, should be looking to Spinoza as opposed to uh, Locke as our sort of progenitor for these ideas about, you know, what it means to have a free society. You know, most people think of Locke as the guy who influenced Jefferson and the American Revolution and stuff like that, which he did. But and, really, it's Spinoza was the more radical kind of guy. And, and I should just point out that, you know, some have posited that what's ha- happening in, in parts of the, um, the Arab world in, in the last, whatever, 20, 50 years is that, you know, the, the, they're having their own sort of radical enlightenment in, in a certain way. And so you have these medieval forces, you know, mm. whatever, the Taliban, ISIS, Al-Qaeda, really refusing to, to move to the next stage of, you know, social and cultural, you know, liberalism, essentially. And so that's right. almost kind of what we're watching. And I, and I think, uh, unlike those in the West who, who uh, you know, I think want to stoke some kind of cultural war. I think those medieval forces in the Arab world are tiny, um, but they're they're well armed. <laughs> they have a megaphone. They have a megaphone. With, they have a with, megaphone with, and a machine gun. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, that absolutely. That's that's a, that's an interesting point. Yeah. Well, Spinoza's main thing, and which kind of I want to bring it back to our topic here. You know, he he was not against, but he sort of uh, the whole idea of an anthropomorphic god seemed to him to be more of a, a fiction than reality, and so he was um, famously uh, uh, so, sort of equating God with nature, um, Deus sive natura in in Latin, um, which basically means God as nature, or not usually translated. I mean. The actual translation is God or nature, but really means God as nature. So his idea was, uh, here's my neighbor playing some loud music. I hope you can hear that. Um, but he, um, so he, he examined this idea, like why, why is it that we invest emotionally in something that, it's, at least at his time, some people were beginning to question as being real or not. Um, and and his solutions, his answers are, a little too deep for this podcast or for my brain at this point, but I'm beginning to grasp it. And he's basically saying that, you know, we, the reason why we invest emotionally in thing in or in things that we know are not true or don't exist is because it serves a certain function. It, it helps us to deal with things that do exist. Um, or it's a, it's a sort of, you know, we moderns, we, we, we play with this all the time. It's a skill that we have, right? We can invest in something like we're watching a movie and we get scared or we get inspired, even though we know it's fiction, right? Obviously, I'm not talking about documentaries. But actually, even with documentaries and even with nonfiction, and this is, again, something that has been on, on my mind because we, we are struggling nowadays to sort of define the line between fiction and nonfiction, like – you know, like you guys, you know, we talked about last last podcast, uh, uh, fans notes uh, by Exley, Frederick Exley. What is it? Is it a? It's a memoir. Yes, it's based on real events. Yes, but it's fictionalized. And what does it mean to fictionalize a memoir? You create something that doesn't exist to showcase something that does exist, but in a better light. I mean, what exactly does that mean? Um, yeah, no. You're, so that's you're, kind of that's kind of what wow. started me thinking about about these lines, and that's why I wanted to have a podcast on this, so I can get you guys' yeah. feedback. You're, you're really, you know, I'll, I'll make a few observations, and I'll be happy to throw it over to you, Heston. I mean, you you've just thrown thrown out some some massive uh, buckets for us to to consider. Yeah, but again, um, the, the basic the basic yeah. line is where do we draw the line between fiction and nonfiction, and how yeah. do we deal with fiction, knowing that it's fiction? Yeah. So. So let me just throw out a couple of things that occurred to me. Before the podcast, we were chatting a little bit about Don Quixote, Cervantes. And I think we all were probably semi in agreement that, like, it's not really an enjoyable read. But, you know, um, it's obviously the, the very basis of Latin American literature. They still have the Cervantes Award to anyone in the Spanish language who writes whatever the best novel. But here's a couple of things to consider is that um, 
um, uh, the the uh, what's the um, the Yale critic Roman that I that I Bloom, Bloom? Right. yeah yes. so so he he posits one theory that um, Shakespeare invented uh, psychology as we know it that that you know our our understanding of human psychology really uh, we owe it to um, we owe it to Shakespeare and and here's two things to kind of consider that kind of blow your mind a little bit and it might help us in our discussion is. Um, Hamlet was published in 1603, and then two years later, just across the channel, um, Don Quixote was published in 1605. Mm -hmm. And so most people point to Don Quixote as kind of the first novel. And, you know, if we think of um, Shakespeare as this, this you know, pre-Freudian kind of person who really, really went into the human psychology and, and sort of brought it into a narrative form. I mean, I, I I know this is only a sliver of answering the questions you just threw out, but I really think of it in terms of um, it's, it's psychology. I think it's an understanding of the human psyche. I'm and sure. these artists started to first um, make the abstract concrete. And you do that in, you know, fiction or or in a play by putting it into a person. And so, um, you know, how is it that we were also just talking about Romeo and Juliet, uh, before we start, how is it that, you know, Romeo and King Lear and Hamlet, um, they're so effing real. Um, and I, and I have to think it's this humans discovering their own psychology and these great artists starting to really, really explore it. So that's that's only a sliver uh, of an answer. But well, that's it's it's funny because you mentioned these you know these dates and uh, Spinoza yeah. is just a little bit later than that. I mean, he oh, actually yeah, deals yeah, yeah, exactly yeah. these kinds of things. And and psychology, it's actually and you mentioned pre-Freudian. Well, there's a lot of Freud in in well, I should say there's a lot of Spinoza in Freud. Yeah. Freud's um, whole ideas, you know, uh, you can almost trace them directly to Spinoza. Spinoza was an excellent psychologist. So, uh, so maybe, the, maybe the aspect is, is that until the rumblings of the Enlightenment, um, you know, in, uh, you know, the 17th century, mm -hmm. um, th there was a certain um, evolutionary maturity where we started to perhaps to yeah. self-understand. Self Some, something I, like that, yeah. No. Um, a zeitgeist, right? That was going yeah. on um, at the time. It reminds me a little bit of uh, Julian Jaynes, who's an um, interesting uh, guy who was much more read you know, 20, 30 years ago than nowadays. Um, um, he had a famous book, uh, something about the bicameral mind and how consciousness split uh, with primitive man, sort of, you know, again, using these terms in a very loose way. But uh, sort of modern consciousness was born when we stop thinking of the voices in our heads as go, you know the gods commanding us directly and yeah. we became sort of self-conscious of our own consciousness so it kind of reminds me a little bit of that so with this radical enlightenment and you know shakespeare writing hamlet right around that time right before spinoza in fact shakespeare uh, i believe he actually kept on revising hamlet until his death he kept on working on it um so it was never really it's such a deep work. It was never really completed in, in a sense. Um, so all all this kind of this mushrooming of this this new kind of consciousness happened just around that time, which makes me think, you know, what what is it about these these mushroomings of 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 new ways of thinking and new approaches? Well, no, not new approaches, but new uh, like a re not a rebirth. I'm I don't know, I'm struggling to describe this, but. It's, this kind of uh, arising, this natural arising of the, of the new way of understanding. Yeah, uh, I don't understand well, how it happens, but it seems to happen at certain specific times in history. Right. Uh, uh, you know, and then it just kind of spreads uh, uh, around the globe. Yeah. Y you know, if you, I mean, if you read the the Greek playwrights, um, I think the thing that you come away with, as opposed to when you enter. The realm of Shakespeare and everything that's come after is, 
you know, these 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 characters, um, even if you're dealing with, you know, Homer and, you know, Oedipus and so forth, they, they do feel somewhat two dimensional. They, they feel more mm-hmm. like, um, you know, exemplars of certain, you know, broad traits in right. humanity, right. you know, kind of in this this sort of oral tradition. And so um, they they feel they still feel very powerful and true because they seem to understand humanity. But they're not—they're not grounded in a specific personage, personage, <laughs> right? Um, a la, you know, Falstaff, or, um, you know, uh, I'm forgetting Don Quixote's companion. So, so interestingly, you said um, personage, and yeah. and that comes from persona, which comes from the Greek, right? Yeah. The Greeks, yeah, as a, as a mask, a persona. You put on a mask. So the Greeks did give birth to that in a way. Yeah. Yeah, but obviously, developed it got developed more, you know, with the the modern age. Yeah. Yeah. So I so this you know just to bring it back to Spinoza. Um, so he he dealt with this whole fiction nonfiction divide through religion. He didn't he didn't go into literature or the theater, though he did suggest that the theater was the the perfect way to for a wise man to relax when he you know was done with all of his you know reasoning and using ratio. You know, which you know loosely translates to logical reasoning, but it really wasn't just this dry logical reasoning. It was, it was he called it understanding, which is a, a, a much better translation. I love that word understanding as opposed to you know logical reasoning. Um, so it's when you when you get tired of that kind of you know of using your ratio, your your logical reasoning, your understanding, to a way to kind of recharge yourself mm. is to turn to the theater again, specifically to the theater. Yeah. Um, and brings us back to Hamlet. <laughs> you know, and, and this this brings it also back to theater makes me think of acting, which uh, the three of us were yapping about Tarantino's new film, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, which I recommend uh, to anyone, even if you're a little weary of Tarantino. And um, I was just reading this really, um, not to get too pop culture on us, but I was reading a really thoughtful uh, profile of Brad Pitt, who's in Tarantino's film in the New York Times. And he was talking about, um, you know, he's become, I think, Heston, you mentioned you thought he stole the show in the film. And he was talking about, um, you know, for him, for a character to work, he has to identify a very real strain within himself. And that's the only way that he can make a character, um, you know, reach out to the audience and so, um, you know, for him, he was saying he grew up with a Missouri father who was, you know, cold and and couldn't express his feelings and, you know, of a man of that era. And so he really uh, he tapped into that for this this performance, um, you know, uh, right. in the Tarantino film. So. So, right, Roman. So getting back to, you know, theater and representing the real in the way that an audience can then, you know, again, to the Greeks, the whole idea of catharsis. Um, so, so it's, there's something there in, yeah. in that area as well. But I think you've hit on something um, that I've certainly noticed this year. Cause you know, I do this thing every year where I challenge myself to read, you know, the, you know, some kind of books that I don't usually read. Right. So this year I, I set myself the challenge of reading nonfiction <laughs> because I don't, I'm not usually a big reader of nonfiction. Um, and I, I, like I've been reading through the Steve Jobs biography, for example. And I, I do feel like if I was reading a fictionalized account of mm. his um, life, I might be able to empathize with him more. <laughs> mm. But because, yeah, I, I certainly feel that like, it, it's really hard for me to em- empathize with some of the decisions that he made in his life. Um, so what is that? Yeah, so, so why I is that? I don't know. I can't put my finger on it, you know, yeah, but I that's... feel like... Um, what yeah, does fiction like have stuff. that nonfiction doesn't? I mean, that's a good... That, that That's a helpful... Yeah, that's another way of rephrasing it. Yeah. yeah. Well, I was just reading... <laughs> we're all just such readers. I was just <laughs> reading an article about, um, about um, Eastern European uh, Holocaust literature and how... Some of it is fictionalized, and and the, the author was making a point that that um, since we have basically just these artifacts 
left from the Holocaust, you know, maybe uh, a site, um, some bones. I mean, just just physical stuff, you know, and and there's no you can describe it in a nonfiction way, but without bringing in emotion. And this is where, again, Spinoza comes in because he was big on emotions and feelings. That was an integral part of his philosophy. If you don't bring in that sort of the, that human touch, which is absent from artifacts, right? We don't, you know, there's no there's no emotion in the gas chamber. You bring it in when you go visit it. You bring in an emotion, but the emotion is not there. It's just a physical place. Um, so, so maybe it's this this addition of emotion that fiction provides that gives us this. That's why we're so addicted to fiction in a way, and and sometimes it's hard to make make that line clear where's the fiction stop and the nonfiction starts or or you know or the vice versa right you, you know I, i'd ask you this heston i would say it's been a while i i did read the uh, walter isaacson biography and i loved it um does i can't recall does isaacson as biographer refuse to to explore the psychology of jobs does he simply just does he get into his head or yeah no? he, out of his head <laughs> yeah, good yeah. question. I, I do think he tries to get in his head a little bit. Um, yeah. He tries to, I do think he tries to um, sort of make you understand, you know, why he made some of the choices he did, right? But like that requires way. an imaginative leap. That requires, quote unquote, fiction. Right. Doesn't Yeah, good point. Um, well, maybe, maybe what it is, so to continue the Steve Jobs, there was a, um, um, I thought a really fabulous film about six years ago, seven years ago. I think it was simply called Steve Jobs, and it it portrayed um, behind the scenes of one of his. I think it was just before he debuted. Maybe it was the um, the uh, iPhone, and the interesting choice they made is to make to choose an actor who looked nothing like Steve Jobs. He didn't try to imitate. The way he speaks, he looked completely different. The only nod to Steve Jobs was that he, um, you know, he wore a uh, <laughs> uh, a Turtle black necks. turtleneck. Right. I, did 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 either of you uh, see that by any chance? It's I quite, haven't. Yeah. No. Yeah. No. It's quite it's quite fabulous. Um, but uh, you know, I'm I'm wondering if um, by by showing. I'm losing a, a bit of the thread of my thought here, but um, well, you talk about Steve Jobs and how yeah. getting into his head or staying outside of his head. Yeah, yeah. Let Let me think on that. If you guys want to I, pick up I that thread, I think the biographer of the the bio the um, biographer is very careful to draw all of his conclusions from. Um, you know, he's he's always facts. quoting people. He, yeah, facts, he's always right, bringing in right, like, right. Um, you know, example conversations that people had. Right. So yeah. I don't think he take. I don't think he really takes that leap. Yeah. Um, very often. Right. Because I guess that will change I, the nature of the biography. Right. Yeah. yeah. I, I I sort of picked up on my stream. What I was going to suggest was that I, this film takes a little bit of some fictional leaps, mm. and so I wonder if that's what. Um, you take the facts of a person like Steve Jobs, but what requires emotional identification is you almost need to um, fake it. You need to fake the real. Right. And I, I think of a, a fabulous book by um, the novelist Tim O'Brien. He wrote a novel called The Things They Carried. So he was a, um, an infantry soldier in Vietnam. And the whole sort of conceit of this fabulous book is that the only way to tell a true war story is to lie. And so, so he, he sort of tells about his experiences in Vietnam, you know, it, without knowing anything, you think, wow, this is just a memoir of his time in Vietnam. But he plants the seed that the only way I can actually convey to you the horrors of war is I have to sort of use some verisimilitude, but I also have to like invent stories. Like that's the only way mm. that yeah. you can you can truly understand the horror, and it's this sort of paradox. And I wonder if it's like the only way to truly empathize with Steve Jobs is to sort of like play around with truth. Because well, I, wanna, on, on a certain I mean, level, do we want to empathize with him, or do we want to just understand? <laughs> well, him? we have to. Here, we if we if we can't empathize with 
with any particular human being, then, then we have more of the world that we currently have, which I think we all agree is getting nastier. Mm. Like, I, I, I would feel like you, you, this is sort of a very purist kind of argument. Maybe this gets into the realm of like religion. But well, I mean, you, have, if you yeah. have to well, emphasize. That's what Spinoza, Spinoza said basically that, that um, there is no such thing as a, as a sort of a quote unquote, you know, a dry idea with no, no emotion attached to it, no empathy. Well, empathy is an emotion, but just more generally, like, you, like let's say you hear a knock on the door. And you open the door, and it's your friends. Your friends standing there. So right away, you you have the the, the, the sort of the cold facts, the the impression, the visual of uh, ah, my, there's my friend. But there's a whole bunch of associations that come with that emotions that, that can uh, oh, you're happy to see your friend, or maybe you're not happy. But you know, there's, there's always any kind of perception, any kind of thing that you have, automatically brings some sort of um, Spinoza calls it a, an affect. It's a it's an emotional sort of um, aspect of of your perception. You can't separate that. You can't have this this cold hard facts without any kind of um, something something sort of emotive about it, you know. And then and then these things change all the time. Like as you're talking to your friend, you're having fun, but then there's a little bit of an emotion saying you know saying oh oh it's almost time for my friend to leave. So maybe there's a little bit of anxiety involved or sadness. So it's always kind of changing, but it's always a part of it. You know, it's always that kind of like um, you can't separate that. So as you read a biography, if it was just a fact, then it would just be a timeline, right? It would just be like, you know, Steve Jobs, born this 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 year, you know, attended this college, uh, dropped acid at this this year, uh, you know, started thinking about uh, computers this year, and they would just be very dry and not and not um, there wouldn't be a, there wouldn't be any kind of um, yeah, well, you I think to relate to it, right? Yeah, I think the art is um, maybe getting the reader to make those leaps, right? Instead of actually making them himself, and I, th I think that that particular biographer is very good at that, you know. Yeah, but um, still, still a lot of a lot of uh, affect affectation, sort of. No, not 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 in that sense, but you know, there's a lot of emotion involved, even in a in a relatively dry biography. There's there's, right. there's like you know something that he did that sounds like he did. It was bad or good or all the various combinations in between. Mm -hmm. um, so you can't really that, – that's nonfiction. When you say nonfiction and you read like let's say uh, an article, the writer always has some sort of point of view that he's trying to – or she is trying to get across. And that always involves some sort of emotion. So even in the driest academic paper, yeah. you're going to have some sort of a, a, a direction. I'm thinking actually – is a good way of thinking for me. Uh, in physics, there's you know there's a vector. A vector is something that has direction. It's not just a, a you know a line. It's it's going somewhere. So in all of our reading, whether it's fiction or nonfiction, there's a line. It's a vector. You know maybe it's sometimes very obscured and hardly seen. And then you think, oh, it's kind of a dry paper. There's really not much there. Or sometimes it's very much evident and then you're maybe it's too evident and then you're thinking oh the author's really pushing this on me this view or it's like too much you know give me a little bit more facts a little you bit know, less um, of your emotions a little bit more facts so this this kind of balancing act between the two but this the two are always present is my point is what spinoza says anyway in my you, know, you, mentioned, you mentioned vectors I, I just add that this was an important formal constructive element that David Foster Wallace used when thinking about oh, yeah? um, Infinite Jest. I, I remember um, an interview with um, Silverblatt on Bookworm, the mm -hmm. fabulous KCRW um, book show. And um, this is what uh, uh, Silverblatt said. I, I think of vectors when I'm when I'm reading Infinite Jest. And David, <laughs> Foster Wallace, David Foster Wallace said, wow, I'm so impressed. You're the mm. only person... I've ever met on this book tour who brought that up. Well, there you go. I'm the second person, but he's dead now, so it doesn't matter. <laughs> but um, yeah, that's, that's exactly what I was thinking about. Is It's got some sort of um, direction. It's not just aimless information, you know, just kind of floating out there. It's got some sort of direction. And this direction is sometimes there on purpose from the author, sometimes not on purpose. But we certainly, as readers, bring that as well. You know, so it's kind of a... A book is a book, of, whether it's fiction or nonfiction, is is just an object until we pick it up and and 
and scan it and start reading it and getting involved with it. And then again, you just can't help but bring some emotion into that involvement as a reader. But again, just to bring it, maybe maybe you guys can help me with this. Because so so to bring it back to the topic. So so we invest emotionally in in characters that we know with our rational you know, reasoning mind that we know don't exist. Again, Spinoza used the religious example, but we're, we're talking a little bit more specifically about literature on this podcast. And I think it's because it, it does help us. It does help us to navigate our own lives because we are storytellers. We live half the time in fiction, right? Yes. I mean, we, we do. I mean, fiction surrounds yes. us all. We have all these hard facts, like I'm talking to this microphone, I have this computer in front of me, but you know, I'm, I'm navigating an, an emotional field as well at the same time. Yeah. As I'm talking, I get excited, I get confused sometimes. You know, All these emotions and, and feelings course through us as we read a particular book, whether it's fiction or nonfiction. But then, but then why have this distinction? And, and what's, how do we deal with that? You know, yeah. what, what's going on here exactly? Yeah, um, you know, I, there's so many ways to go with this. Um, exactly. yeah, <laughs> I mean, no. I, I could throw topic. it. A, yeah, I mean, w one one person who's thought a lot about this, and he put it in a book, "Reality Hunger," by mm. David Shields. And so this is the book that that finally said that you know, literary fiction, as it's currently in its incarnation, has sort of died out. And yeah, he he really believed that. Um, that in the world that we live in, that that nonfiction is really the only thing that can, because fiction, a la the 19th century novel that's still playing out, um, is is played out. Much like you're, you're starting to hear um, people suggest or, or bemoan the fact that rock and roll um, might actually be kind of gone, you know, the the sort of four-piece rock band. I mean, what, what we're seeing more and more is that um, uh, pop and, and hip-hop and rap is starting to become like a huge part of what used to be, you know, rock festivals. And and so that's a whole other discussion. But but it, 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 it might just be that, you know, the novel, the fictional novel that everyone that, that began with Don Quixote, you know, might as sort of reached its peak in the late 19th century and is is still just kind of playing out mm. um and you know there there are writers i mean it, it i don't want to skip the point about your specific question of you know how how do we why and how do we identify so deeply with these um these elements on a page that we know that, that, yeah. that we know don't exist with you know we, we know that <laughs> but like it, it makes me think or of the they, writer. Or do they exist in some sense? Well, I, Does I don't know. Exist in some sense. Yeah, you know, it, what I'm saying? when when we read that book, I think the human condition and the human imagination does most of the work. And I can't help thinking of books are constructed by writers who go to writing workshops and get MFAs. And I think if they do their job well. They only need to suggest certain markers that parallel the real world and the human imagination we do the does rest. the rest. Right, right. And um, I mean, they teach you if, if I mean, I, I took a, a writing workshop once um, in Southern California. I hated it. But, you know, they, they essentially sort of instruct you to, like, create a scene, you know, be very specific with concrete objects, you know, sort of um, – Leave a breadcrumb trail of of specificity, mm. you know, a, a cashmere sweater, a lime green carpet, and the human imagination. It's incredible how they can um, how they can sort of go with that. I mean, that that's still not getting to a deep level of your question, but that's what's occurring to me. Before I forget, guys, I just want to because you mentioned David Shields in that book, Reality Hunger, um, which I thought was a very interesting read. Um, you know, maybe think certain certainly made me think, which is always a good thing. But one of the best things about that book is is his um, recommendations for yeah. you know good nonfiction stuff. And I really want to uh, just mention it because I, I'm not sure if it's that well known. 
um, a wonderful, wonderful series of books. I think it's like three or four books uh, by Simon Gray, G-R-A-Y, a British uh, playwright. It's called The Smoking Diaries. And I just... I don't normally read kind of uh, memoirs and nonfiction like, like that. I mean, I do, but not. You know, it's just not not my mainstay. But this, I really, really enjoyed. It's like you know, he reflects on a life filled with cigarettes and alcohol, various triumphs, disasters, you know, adultery, friendships, and love, blah blah blah. <laughs> but it's just it's just written so well, and it's a diary. It's just this diary. He turns sixty-five. Uh, mm. You know, he's getting sick. Um, there's there's a lot of just it's just so well written so I, I just before we move on i just want to drop this recommendation the smoking diaries by simon gray if you want to read great creative nonfiction, yeah. this is it this is it um but just to bring it back to um again i'm, I'm sorry i keep coming back to spinoza it's just really been on my mind yeah um, um like I said, I think I suggested earlier that he says that you know this imaginative capacity to get involved in fiction and sort of pretend for a while that it's real is is a skill. It's a skill that we moderns have worked out pretty well. It's it didn't used to be a skill, but now it's a skill, um, and it's it's kind of an important skill because it it helps us to to deal with our present and also sort of imagine a future. Uh, because future is imaginary. Future is complete fiction. I just saw a billboard that made me laugh um, the, the other week. Uh, something about it was like a healthcare company or something said, we're changing the future. I'm like, really? You're changing the future? <laughs> I didn't know that the future was there to be changed. I mean, it's, you know, it's not determined. So you can't change something that's not determined. But anyway, so it's just a... Uh, maybe think about you know what is exactly you know what is the future and it is fiction right I mean it's it's complete fiction yet it's happening all the time it's being brought into the present and so the way we think about the future is also fiction but it's something that we can sort of realize and make concrete and make it non-fiction at some point um, but it's still it's still a very fine line it's still I'm not I'm not quite sure just to bring it back to literature, you know, again, we're reading the fan, uh, fans' notes uh, last time. It's um, an embellished nonfiction, shall we say. Um, it adds to our reality. It adds to the nonfiction part. Uh, so maybe that's why we invest emotionally into in it, because it, it helps us process what is actually happening and maybe imagine various different ways of doing things. Let's say you're trapped in a bad situation. Um, you know, let's say let's say your business is going downhill, and you're you know, you're like, oh crap, it's going to be I'm you know, I'm going to declare bankruptcy, and this is the end of me. I'm a failure. So that's that's already you're putting some sort of um, fictionalized ways of looking at it. Like you're you're saying you're giving yourself a narrative of failure, you know. But the reality is, well, it's just what's happening. Uh, you could put a different narrative on it and say, well, it's just an end of one phase of my life and I can begin something different. Maybe this frees me up from something that I've been doing that I don't particularly, particularly like. And now I can do something else. So this this imaginative capacity to take a leap beyond what exists. And I'm, I just did air quotes when I said what exists. I'm not, I'm not exactly sure why I did that. Um, <laughs> well, but you maybe, mentioned um, – sorry. Mm -hmm. You, ahead, you, mentioned, you mentioned changing the future earlier, and I just thought about um, the many books that I've read where uh, the author has injected a character into history, you know, yeah. and almost n not even changed the history in, in the novel, but just injected characters into the, this, these historical times mm -hmm. and then had fictionalized versions of real people wandering around in the novel talking to the protagonist. Um, mm. I love that. I, I love that. Yeah, I, I love, you know, uh, books like that, like the Cryptonomicon by Neil Stevenson. Uh -huh, he does that, uh -huh. right, where he's got, like, Albert Einstein and General MacArthur <laughs> knocking around. Have you, and he's Heston, got the have, you ever read, um, have you ever read the Riverworld series by Philip Jose Farmer? Uh, no, I haven't. Oh, you would love this. You would absolutely love this. It's um, it's science fiction of the highest order. Um, it's based, it's um. He imagines this this world, this I guess we can call it a planet. It's a, it's a world where all of humanity is resurrected, um, and they kind of have to you know live together 
uh, you know, you have people from across history living together at the same time on this planet, and they have to figure out, you know, figure out what, what what's going on, basically. But that's not the point. The point is that he's got um, uh, Sam Clemens, you know, Mar Mark Twain, uh, working with Goebbels, uh, the, the <laughs> Nazi guy, and there's, um, um, who else is in there? There's um, Burton, the... Um, the guy that translated the Thousand and One Nights, um, I forget his first name. Why do I forget his first name? But in any case, um, so they're all kind of these, so he imagined all these, all these real people, but in the fictional context, I mean, very fictional context. I mean, we're right. talking science fiction, you know, we're talking a different planet, you know, resurrection, all that kind of completely fictional right. things. Uh, but it's fascinating how it treats, you know, I mean, think about it this way. I mean, the, uh, Mark Twain resurrected on a planet. <laughs> what? I mean, that, that's another wonderful exercise yeah. of just kind of imagination. Yeah, and actually, we're, you know, we're going to read uh, three Richard body Bur problems soon. Go ahead. Um, that has an aspect of it too, where he's brought back um, these sort of scientists all the way from sort of medieval times to modern times. He's, you know, he's got El Einstein and. Uh, you know, uh, you know Isaac Newton, and uh, in this video game in the novel. So yeah, he's brought back all of these fictionalized characters, and then the the, the protagonist is talking to them about you know science and and the three body problem, which is a mathematical problem. Um, yeah, it's really fascinating when when authors do that, and it yeah. also kind of stretches the you know that line between uh, fact and right. fiction a little bit. Right. Exactly. Exactly. The plot thickens, as they say. You know. Um, so it's. It's it's a like I said I think it's like, as as Spinoza he calls it a skill and I love the way he refers to it as a skill, um, but he also believes that um, that that it's important to bring our emotions in line with our beliefs. That was kind of one of his major um, projects: is how do you do that? How do you bring your emotions in line with your beliefs? This kind of goes counter to what we've been talking about because. If you believe that something doesn't exist, let's say an anthropomorphic god in Spinoza's case, how do you bring your emotions in line with that? So, so then you stop believing in an anthropomorphic god, yet, yet maybe at some points you still do believe in it because it helps you live in a harmonious way. Because you know the Bible narratives are there really um, to help us live cooperatively which is another very important aspect of Spinoza's thought, is how do we live cooperatively um, you know, in societies? And what does it mean to have a free society? Um, you know, so it's, it's this, this weird sh uh, kind of a tension. There's a tension when we pretend that something that is fiction, you know, when we think of something as fiction and then we invest emotionally in, in it, there's a tension involved in that, in that sort of process let me you know, um let, mm -hmm. let me try to uh ground this a bit in in something uh in a book that we talked about several months ago and that's you know the leopard by lampedusa so i think um we both adored the book and the the central character is the prince and um he is part of this um aristocratic family in sicily and um on the eve of a democratic um, system being introduced into Sicily and in Italy uh, uh, on a larger scale. And so his his way of life is in decline. And I think he is so real to me uh, in the sense that um, I can still, I, I admire him. I, I can feel the, the the pain at which all that he knows is is declining. I can feel his love for his nephew, even though his nephew represents forces that will not respect his ways and the old mm -hmm. ways. And I, I can go on and on. So so I feel I, I kind of love the prince in a way. And mm -hmm. so um, isn't this simply a question of mastery of language that that Lampedusa is a master of language of of narrative of character development of human psychology, and you know Rob Fay is a fairly proficient reader uh, who's just been reading for a very long time, and so um, you know is this sort of the the um, 
the smoke and mirrors of creating a novel, um, uh, uh, even if it's not consciously in the mind of the artist, but using all the tools that can manipulate or, or uh, inspire in a more positive sense of the human imagination. And, and, a, and a reader, I think, has to bring an emotional openness. You know, these are not clinical medical textbooks, right? These are um, explorations of characters, of, of, of representations of humanity. Um, and, and so is, isn't it really simply the, the, the meeting of a, a well-schooled, well-intentioned, um, eager reader with a, a master artist? Right. And, and, and so so when books when books don't um, quite uh, work, there's probably either it's a uh, mediocre artist or perhaps you have a untrained reader or an unpracticed reader. Um, you know, I, I know yeah. you're, you're coming at it from a very philosophical point of view, and I'm also trying to trying to incorporate that into. I mean, this is called the Feeling Bookish Podcast, which I know that you you were referencing when you thought about, you know, feelings. Mm. And so, um, you know, by doing this podcast, I've I've become more aware of there's a community of people who who don't aspire to write, but are such dedicated readers. You know, and many of them are supporters of this podcast, and I appreciate them greatly. Um, so. So I'm 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 thinking about that dynamic that's also at play. The 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 well the well ready eager reader who meets the great artist and and you know sparks fly. Well, let me ask you this then, Rob. Like you mentioned the prince, we're talking about Lampedusa. It's based on it's based in history, right? I mean, it's, it's an historical novel, so to speak. Uh, Without calling it that, let's not get technical. But you know what I mean? It's set in a yeah, historical yeah, yeah, yeah. period. It, right. It's, it's, it's not the River happened. Series by Philip Jose Farmer. Right. right. It's not the River okay. World Series. However, okay. however, speaking of that, exactly, that's, what, that's, that's where I'm going with this. Let's yeah. say, because I, I learned a lot about history from reading uh, The Leopard. I, I about that period and uh, you know in history what was happening in Sicily and the unification of Italy and yeah. Garibaldi and stuff that I kind of ten tangentially knew already because I'm a you know semi-educated kind of person, but I really I really got I really got an inside sort of what I think is an insider's view of that period you know because he lived through it and then he wrote about it in an imaginative you know, fictional way. However, I learned something about quote unquote the real world, the you know, the history of that of that period. So, now let's extrapolate a little bit. Let's dig deeper and say Lampedusa was a, a slightly different kind of person and he decided to write a science fiction novel uh, starring the prince. And he created this world that say, you know, like Ursula K. Le Guin with the dispossessed, she imagined a society, um, you know, on, on some planet thingy, and then extrapolating what happens to the society. Obviously, it has relations to our real world, but it's science fiction. So let's say this novel, The Leopard, was set on a planet somewhere and had basically the same setup, the same characters. Uh, because he, in a way, you know, what science fiction writers do, they, they, they do world building. They have to, right? Because they yeah. nobody knows about some planet somewhere in their society because yeah. they just made it up. But now Lampedusa didn't make it up. Or, I mean, he did, but he didn't. He did, but, he, you know, there's this, this weird bouncing back and forth where he takes an historical context and then he overlays it with, with a fictionalized account of things as they really were. But it's fictionalized. Now, would that be very different if he completely made the whole thing fiction? Would it affect us differently? Would um, you emotionally respond in a different way? No. The key is, and that's a great example to talk about a science fiction artist who has to do world building. But what he doesn't build is he doesn't build human psychology. He mm. he understands it. And so um, – it, it really doesn't matter whether it's 2085 or 1885. 
if if there isn't if there aren't like if it isn't a four dimensional nuanced surprising um fictional human being be being portrayed most good readers are gonna are gonna uh bail they're gonna well, totally bail this it's funny because this brings us by commodious vicus of recirculation as the finnegan's wake has it uh, did i say the finnegan's wake as finnegan's wake has it uh, it brings us back to Spinoza because you use the word understanding. He understands psychology, and that's exactly the word that Spinoza uses for that, that other way of thinking, which is how do we relate to the natural world? We use our understanding, our reasoning sort of. It's, this is, we're talking about something that's not fiction, that actually exists. Um, so so that divide between your our imagination and our understanding uh, is – that divide itself is very fuzzy and in a way <laughs> in a way fictional, both fictional and not. Um, you have to use both in whatever literature we're talking about, whether it be the most fantastical science fiction novel or the most realistic nonfiction memoir. Yeah. There are both things working at the same time. Our understanding, which comes from our knowledge of what's real, and our, our imagination, which comes from things that don't have to be necessarily real. Um, you know, so this, this interplay, and I think Spinoza's main point is it is a skill that we can work on uh, that, that, that sort of ba balances these two spheres and helps us to live more joyfully because ultimately Spinoza's thing is about, you know, how do we lead these lives of, you know, of joy as opposed to sorrow. We want to avoid things that give us sadness and we want to pursue things that gives us, give us joy. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and I mean, I think that's a good segue to like, I mean, maybe the three of us can just recount a book and a character that just gave us joy. Cause I think ultimately the reason the three of us are, always freaking reading and, and the people who listen to this podcast is like we've had a reading experience of joy and and i'm constantly we've talked about this Roman chasing that that mm. high oh yeah. Like, yeah yeah like you know if i read 80 books in a year like probably um you know maybe 40 of them are really good but probably only three just had me enthralled mm, mm -hmm, and I'm mm -hmm. always looking for those three books. Like right now I'm reading, um, a novel by, um, Javier Marias and it's good, but I'm always chasing. Yes. He had a trilogy, your, your face tomorrow. He wrote these three books. Every other book I've read by Marias is really good. And it, it kind of reminds me of that, that falling in love that I had with him, you mm. know, Mm -hmm. But I can't get back to that, to that honeymoon but, but, period. But you but, keep, so that you keep looking for that. Yeah. I that's, keep well, looking for that's, it. That's the way my life has been. That's That's been the major sort of theme of my life is going from one complete infatuation with an author to looking for that other, for the next one. You know, where is it going to, what's going to really light up those neurons and make my that's brain it. dance. And, um, and, and that happens rarely, right? Like you it just happens it. so rarely. Yeah, and so that's yeah. the part that like. Well, that's why that's why like people like Harold Bloom and his whole Western canon thingy is a bit of a map because why why are the classics classic? You know, why do we still read Don Quixote even though it doesn't particularly you know it's it's not a modern work obviously. Um, but so it it has you know the classics serve like a, a little bit of um, a guide to where to find those highs. But, but those, sometimes they're not necessarily to coincide. Sometimes you find yeah. something that's not a classic, you know? But but the, like like Heston, like you were saying, the, the classics can be tricky because you're like, Don Quixote, ah, uh, Well, it's because you're supposed to like it, right? You're, whenever you're supposed to like something or yeah. whenever you're told to do something, you immediately don't want to do it. <laughs> yeah. Well, on the other hand, though, um, I think when I was thinking about this question, uh, I keep going back to The Great Gatsby. Yeah. And and that is a novel that I was forced to read in high yeah. school, right? And I think I've read that book six or seven times now. Yeah. Right? Like, I keep going back to it. And I, it's and so I think perfect. it is because it, it is. It's just a perfect novel. Yeah. Right? 
and um, there is that empathy that you have for Jay Gatz, even though you're not in his shoes at all, right? It's a completely different era. Um, there's yeah. just something so human about him. Yeah. Um, and I mean, it is, you know, it's a novel about the human condition, right? But yeah, yeah I don't know. That's just, yeah, it's a perfect book for me. So that, yeah. that would be my example. I, I agree. And, and I guess I would throw out like, you know, uh, Holden Caulfield, you know, the catcher. Uh, I was the just thinking that, Rob. I was just thinking that. Yep. Um, you know, I read it at the perfect age, maybe 14 or 15. I was also becoming a better reader at that time. And, you know, it just, it sandbagged me. And I, I don't know. And in, in, in fact, all of, um, yeah. I, and then, I and then there's the weird phenomenon of, of having that experience and then living another 10, 20 years and then changing your mind about that. Like me and the, you know, Nabokov and I. Maybe yeah. that sounds like a great essay title, Nabokov and I. Uh, <laughs> you know, I used to be enthralled with Nabokov, right? He was my guy. I was discovered him early on in my early 20s. And I remember sitting in, sitting in my uh, Russian literature class in, in college. And we uh, had this wonderful uh, Hungarian professor, Professor Dienisch. And uh, I, I remember pounding my desk and saying, Professor, how come nobody ever told me about Nabokov before? How come I came to him so late? And I was like 20, you know? <laughs> um so and and then uh, something happened in the intervening 20 or so years 25 years that i have i am uh, allergic now to Nabokov. i don't i don't despise him don't get me wrong i still have a soft spot for things like uh Pneen. uh i love that book um but something about his prose and i actually i, I do know what pushed me over the edge and it was um um uh, oh my gosh! Who wrote the the postcard uh, postcard quartet? Um, my goodness! Um, in any case, he um, I, I was reading in this book that is something about um, the ersatz quality of of Nabokov's prose, and it's almost a direct quote. Um, and it 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 made me realize that that's exactly why I couldn't read him anymore. Yeah. Um, um, but but perhaps it was just you know these were just. These were foundational books that you needed. They were like ladder steps to 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 move to, um, you know. Again, if you think of reading as a as its own discipline, you know, to move to those next level. So, I mean, I think of that way. Um, Raymond Carver. I was so enthralled with Raymond Carver. I wanted to write these minimalist, you know, working class kind of short stories and. You know, I wanted to be the um, you know the New England Raymond Carver for a while. And um, I, I, the thought of sitting down and reading a Raymond Carver short story right now, I, <laughs> I think I'd rather, you know, I don't know, like, You'd rather go, go for to, a long walk, go to the dentist or something. Right, I mean, I just right. won't, I won't do that, you know. Um, but I, I'm glad I met him, and I've, I've consumed his work into me in a certain way, and um, you know, there it is. Yeah, maybe it's just part of the part of your, your growth or your psychological development and something about it does just does not speak to you anymore you know these books have to speak to us they have to sort of they have to give something back when we start reading them they have to give something back i mean obviously it's it's the amount of you know it's the amount of attention we would give them and also our place in life at, at the moment but if books don't speak to us in some way to our current uh, psychological makeup and our current whatever situation then they 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 ring hollow. There, there's something not quite right with them. At the same time, um, you know, people like Bernhardt will. I I think I will probably always love Bernhardt, Thomas Thomas Bernhardt, because he 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 really cut to the bone with me, and I I just I I stick with it. You know, it it doesn't have that quality like with Nabokov that I just kind of lost my. Um, I almost lost my respect for him. I, I know that sounds really harsh uh, to say to, to a, a wonderful writer like Nabokov, but I, I lost my my ability to enjoy his prose because there's something about his. Oh, that's not the thing that I, I know. We're we're supposed to finish. I know we've been running a little bit long, but let me just quickly before I before we finish, kind of because I, I I think this whole thing is driving towards you know this point at least for me is. Um, what are we looking for when we read? We, we're looking for for some uh, for an author that resonates with the way we feel, right? Um, 
and it's for me, it's like you know William Gaddis, for instance, or, or David Markson's the person that that turned me off of Nabokov. By the way, I just remembered David Markson. Uh, people with a deep, some sort of um, ethical or moral point of view that's not pushed on us through their fiction, but is exhibited through their fiction. And so that attracts me. I want to be more sort of morally complete or morally um, enriched. And by morally and ethically, I mean, I, I mean exactly that. I mean, how do we live justly in this world? And authors that suggest or imagine ways of doing that, or at least showing us, showing me ways that it's not being done and it should be done. Those are the people that I'm attracted to. Uh, besides, obviously, the the obvious thing like you know, writing style, which is very important, and just the, the, the actual craft of of writing is uh, supremely important as well. I mean, the, that moral sort of pull is what I I'm like Dostoevsky, you know, Gaddis, like I said, um, even people like. Um, um, oh, I, the Australian author, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm drawing a blank. But in any case, um, I think that's what pulls me in my imagination uh, to read these kinds of writers is people who kind of show me here's a better way of being a human being. I It's hard to, I mean, w- what you just said is very, um, very beautiful in a certain way. I mean, it, it does make me think of how do you then deal with a writer like Celine who is personally despicable in his anti-Semitism and his his fascism, and also the novels he there is no there is no nothing about perfecting one's morality. There is simply despair and depicting a world, particularly that is dealing yeah. with World War well, look, One. Dostoevsky was an anti-Semite as well, but that doesn't stop us from reading him and and really enriching ourselves with his works. So I, I I don't know if there's any enrich enrichment going on with Celine, but oh, the artistry so. the artistry is is of mm. such a high nature, and he, the truth that he calls out is so undeniable that I tend to feel myself floating. And it's been a while since I've read him, but but that's exactly the feeling that I'm describing. Right? Yeah, that's, that's yeah, exactly what I, I'm saying. It's, I guess as a as a as a former Catholic, I, I get sidetracked by words like morality. Yeah, yeah, that's a very dangerous word to use. And uh, all I mean by that is 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 like I said, is how do we live justly in in our world? Yeah, you know, how do we treat others in a just manner? How do we treat ourselves in a just manner? And that that's metaphysical. That's morals. That's that's got something to do with this ineffable quality about us humans. That that. Um, is is a kind of a step above the nonfiction. This is what we're talking about. You know, this emotional enrichment that we get from books, whether they're horribly pessimistic, like with Celine or Dostoevsky, we still get enriched. We still get something out of them. Um, and I, I don't mean in any kind of utilitarian, you know, sense. Like, oh, that's that's why we read it, just to get something out of it. No, that's not what you know. Art for art's sake, I'm all for that. Um, but there's something that that's the magnet. That's the that's the vector. Yeah. That, that same thing with David Foster Wallace. I mean, Infinite Jest. What an infinitely sad book that is, right? There's a lot of sadness in it, and it's sometimes yeah, hard to yeah, read. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but we want to read it because it sort of enriches us in, in certain ways and let lets us see that sadness without cringing and turning away from it. Mm. You know, um, there's a lot to a lot to think about. <laughs> yeah, no this this podcast could spill into many other podcasts. This this was a uh, yeah. Um, I think go on probably for many more hours yeah and and you know uh uh, dear listeners i i I hope you see that we were zigzagging around but i i hope you found it as fun um as we did because i think that's that's part of what makes a great discussion that it 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 zigzags around Um, so um we have kind of reached sort of the top of the hour um i do want to throw it over to our east portland studio in heston um, so Heston, we're going to be reading the three body problem uh, next, and you you sent a very helpful uh, video that um, is by a Western woman who's a Mandarin speaker, and she kind of helps with the pronunciation of the characters. But uh, maybe having spent four years in Taiwan, can you just remind us of the how to pronounce the author's name, the author of the three body problem? <laughs> I'm gonna have to I'm gonna have to bring it up quick on my other screen because I yeah. can't actually remember his his full name. Um, so <laughs> X X I U or something like that is his last yeah, name. Yeah. So, 
So for those playing at home, it's C-I-X-I-N-L-I-U. And I should have done uh, my own homework uh, so that we can pronounce so I, the... I believe it's pronounced Cixin uh, Liu. Yeah, Cixin Liu. I am by no means uh, yeah an expert. Of course, I'll just and throw that out there. Totally, yeah, yeah. You're, but you've got a you've got a, a slight and, step ahead in, on us. And I think we can probably link that YouTube video when we post the. Uh, That's a good idea. Post this, so people, yeah. or you can. I guess you put it on Twitter and. Brilliant. So yeah, you, yeah. Okay. I, I'll do that. So, um, so that's our next book, and um, you know, certainly we can also be thinking about um, whether we are identifying. Uh, on an emotional level with some of the characters or, or how they're so different. They come from such a different cultural. uh, Yeah. I'm excited. I, 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 uh, to, to go in this direction and, and I'm not normally a a big reader of science fiction. So it's also good to, I'm I'm very excited because I was, I was telling Heston before we started taping that, that, um, it seems like the really exciting science fiction is coming out of China right now. It's because they're experiencing this, this tremendous growth. Yeah. cultural technological growth that america was having post-world war ii yeah. and that's exactly when america had the, the golden age of science fiction yeah where it really inspired engineers i mean we wouldn't have the moon landing without science fiction we wouldn't have that you know yeah. so this interesting sort of dynamic is happening right now in china which is why we're reading this book and we're going to be talking about it because it's really it's something new is happening you know something interesting is happening over yeah. there so you know, take a look at that yeah, what one sort of unfortunate piece, of course, is it is a authoritarian regime that does have yeah. the ability to censor. So, I, so you wonder what we're not being able to read, or what what will come uh, in the decades after. Perhaps there's some political change in China. Um, you know, you, you never know how these things can uh, regimes can fall overnight, as we saw in you know, Eastern Europe and Soviet Union years ago, but. Um, so unless uh, any any parting words or recommendations uh, before we get into I, I our final. I just want to remind, remind readers, uh, just readers, <laughs> listeners, readers. about the, the smoke. They're diet. readers. It's, they are readers. Uh, you know, it's funny. I just haven't thought about the book, uh, uh, the, those three, four books. And then you mentioned David Shields in reality, uh, Hunger. And I remember them and that rush, you know, when you remember something that you read that's so good that you just haven't been thinking about in years and then it comes to your mind. So I just want to be, uh, you know, exercise my book pushing rights as a podcaster here and just remind people The Smoking Diaries by Simon Gray. If you want to read amazing, amazing nonfiction that will just captivate you, uh, huge recommendation. Yeah, that's it. Nice. And was it uh, Philip Jose Farmer? The- Philip Jose Farmer, the Riverworld series. The first book right. is called Riverworld, I believe. Uh, it started as a long, short story or a novella, I guess. But really, you could just pick it up uh, in the first novel. Uh, Heston, I think you would absolutely love it. It's just awesome. I'll definitely take a look. Great. All right, folks. Well, uh, thanks for listening in. We appreciate it as always. And um, we'll just remind you that... Uh, the Feeling Bookish podcast is on Twitter at feelbookish. And we're also recently on Instagram. And so that's at Feeling Bookish Podcast. So uh, for uh, Heston Hoffman here in Portland, I'm Rob Fay uh, on Twitter at Robert Fay One. And thanks to Roman Sivkin on Twitter at Zenju. Thanks, guys. Appreciate it. Until next time. See ya. Thank you. Bye-bye.